This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Patreon, where creators can build a more sustainable income source by giving their fans monthly access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out patreon.com now. For NPR Music, I'm Ann Powers with a special edition of All Songs Considered, a conversation with the great Cheryl Crow. The nine-time Grammy winner came to the Tiny Desk for the very first time as part of our Tiny Desk Fest, bringing her stellar band of mostly Nashville-based musicians and enchanting the crowd with songs from her new album Threads and classics like All I Want to Do and If It Makes You Happy. After the show, we headed downstairs to NPR's Studio One, where Cheryl made time for a conversation before she got on her red-eye flight back to Nashville. She talked about how surviving breast cancer had changed her life and why Threads might be her final album. Cheryl also shared some powerful political opinions and some charming anecdotes. One favorite of mine is her memory of spinning around in her bedroom listening to Stevie Nicks. We started by talking about the experience she just had playing the tiny desk, and she enthused about her status as an NPR nerd. It's fun to see people in like a, uh, even though it's not a natural setting, but to see them actually being real people. Because everything now is so slick and so produced, and it's just fun to see people be real. So that's one of the reasons I, I love Tiny Desk. So it's great to see people make mistakes and have more wrinkles than they do in their own social media. And, uh... <laughs> um, I noticed you had a great sing-along on Out of Our Heads. And what were some of the ideas you brought to the Tiny Desk specific to the space? Well, you know, we, we knew we wanted to do a couple of the new things because for me, making records it's not only a joy it's my outlet and then now it's so different with getting your stuff heard it's not like radio is going to play the deep cuts like in the 70s when I grew up believe it or not so it's great for us to get to play those things and get to reinterpret them but also with what's going on in the world you know the timeliness of a lyric like out of our heads it's I have quite a few songs that probably were deep cuts that really talked about times throughout the the period of my life for the last I mean 30 years I've been making records so it's great to be able to come into some place like not only just NPR and their listeners but also just to have an avenue to, to sing songs that actually say something so well speaking of that your new album threads it's it's a really powerful album on a lot of levels first of all it's kind of it's a sonic memoir in a way it's a story of your life through collaborations you have a ton of amazing guests on this album and conceptually it really goes from the very personal to as you're saying like commentary on where the world is today Mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit about how you conceptualize that record the album began with actually collaborations with Chris Christopherson, and um, it was the 40th anniversary of Austin City Limits. I was in Austin, and his wife, Lisa, who I'm very good friends with, and I've known the Christoffersons now for the t- better part of 20, t- 22 years, and he's been a monumental inspiration for me as a songwriter, but also as a great American and just a great person and an incredible mind, great storyteller. So as we know, he has been diagnosed with either a tick-borne type of dementia or Alzheimer's. Um, I don't know what the conclusion was, but he's not making memories anymore. So they asked me if I'd come in and work with him and do some of his material so that he would own it in posterity, so that his family would own his masters, in other words. And so you had to re-record those songs. So we re-recorded them. And what was interesting about it was, and I don't know if you guys have seen the Glenn Campbell um, documentary, um, and how music tethers you 
to so many memories of your life. It tethers you to a time that you can remember. And I mean, like vivid memories. He could tell me about, you know, oh, Chris Squire sang on this song. And oh, man, he had the highest voice. I mean, just mm-hmm. like he was there. But then he couldn't remember that we just recorded 10 minutes ago hmm. or he knew he knew me, but he wasn't, you know. Um, it's, but it's interesting how music can do that. I came home from the experience. I'm blowing through this because um, it, does, it does go somewhere. <laughs> but I came away from that experience and I felt like this was my relationship to music when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It gave me a sense of person. It gave me a sense of identity. It helped me find my way when I felt like an outsider. I took it out of my hometown. I mean, I, I grew up in a town of three stoplights, and I poured over rumors, and I poured over Fleetwood Mac, and I sang Landslide until my parents were like, just, it was like ad nauseum. And, and it was the same with Carole King, and it was the same with James Taylor, and it was the same with, I mean, just so many. It was the same with Stevie Wonder. I mean, it, there are just so many people that ushered me out of my hometown and into what I'm doing. We were talking before uh, you got on stage today about uh, how the Tiny Desk reminded you of some of the places you played early in, in your yes. career. Can you share some yeah, of those places? Yeah, so um, it's funny. I always think about Cole Miner's daughter, and they show a scene of Dew zipping up her dress, and she gets out of the car with her acetate and goes in and plays for the record programmers. Well, that actually, when I was coming up, when I first started in the early uh, my first record came out in the early 90s. That's what we did. We went to record programmers. We went and we played in people's offices. We went and played in their meeting rooms, you know, radio programmers. Like at 6.30 in the morning, we brought donuts, and I played Leaving Las Vegas. And, I mean, it was that's what you did. You know, now it is so different. I mean, I can't even explain how different it is. But, but I'm glad. I'm thankful that I have those memories and that I remember celebrating moving from a van with a U-Haul to an RV and then to a bus. And those are the experiences that I think it's part of the weed out process. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has a computer and a lot of people can make music now and you can tune yourself. To me, it was part of the process of figuring out A, who I was and B, how to do it and see whether I wanted to stick it out, you know. Well, I think that's one of the things live that's really powerful about what you do. I mean, you are such a storyteller. And Somehow, when you bring your songs live to an audience, whether it is a small audience like we're talking about, you have to get that story into the heart of your audience. Mm -hmm. And I know I saw some people tonight who were feeling Cheryl in your hearts, you know? So how do you do that as a performer? Because, you know, you have choices. You could go for the... You have the vocal skill to go for the big note. You could dance and flash. But you're you're sharing the story. How do you Flashing, I will never do. <laughs> Flash dance, I meant. <laughs> um, well, you know, I always welcome the opportunity to just be in the room with people. Um, I will say things changed for me I, after I had breast cancer, and I wanted all the lights on all the time. I wanted to look at everybody. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have that connection. And um, not too many years later, uh, the phone got put between us, you know, and mm-hmm. now I have to keep breathing mm-hmm. so that I, it doesn't it doesn't rob me because it just it grieves me that... It's almost impossible now for, particularly for young people, to just be and to be quiet and just to be in the room together and absorbing each other's energy and being comfortable with being in their bodies, you know, Mm -hmm. in a place and experiencing something collectively. So, and that, I don't care if it's five people. I mean, I'm happy to just sing to you if you don't mind. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) or if it's 10,000 or or 100,000, I mean, it's, to me, it's all the same because, you know, I can always see people and feel something, you know, and isn't that, I mean, that's what life is. It's feeling and it's breathing and, 
Well, know? I think one of the things we can all agree about Sheryl Crow's writing is that your songs make us feel seen, I think, mm, thank you know, you. and I especially, I mean, thank you for singing, as I told her, my two favorite, my Cold Creek Road, my favorite from the new record, and then If It Makes You Happy, my favorite of all time, one of the greatest rock ballads of all time, I think we can agree. Oh, thank um, you. And what makes it so great is that sense of vulnerability <laughs> and of expressing the truth of just ordinary people. So I wonder, as a writer, Lyrically, you get there, but also even as a vocalist, how do you make the, that kind of empathic connection? Yeah, um, with, on this field trip that I took with my sixth grade, grader and all of his, I mean, the four classes of sixth graders, we went to Hannibal, and I was a kid that grew up in a household where my parents, and they still do, they're married 63 years, they've read every book known to man, hmm. and they were just, they still read, and that's part of their connection is that, you know, is your relationships change, you have these things that you have in common in books is one of the things that that they have. So he, my dad, read To Kill a Mockingbird to us, and he read Puddinhead Wilson by Mark Twain, which brings me to the Mark Twain thing. I think I grew up loving words and loving stories before I ever actually learned how to write a song. Mm. When I finally started writing my own songs, it was just the art form of writing a story with a beginning and a middle and end that I love. That's one of the things that just... When I heard the thing on NPR about the six-second attention span and everything's top line, musical hook, you got to change it every six seconds, I was like, no, I'm doomed. <laughs> I'm going to writer's hell. Um, but I'll yeah. be there with you, yes, by the way. Yeah. No, there's room for everything. I mean, there's always going to be a need for people who are just commentators or whatever. So, yeah, I just always loved, I loved books. I loved, I'm not, I'm not the best singer, but I'm the best singer for me. And I just, I like telling stories, you know. Is there something about that style of songwriting that connects you to Nashville? Well, I grew up three and a half hours from Nashville, and I grew up in a very close-knit family in a very small town, and there is something about Nashville that is like that. I mean, I grew up going to church. Nashville has a church on every corner. The town is very family-oriented, and there's no paparazzi there. The people of Nashville would not tolerate it. They want you to have a normal life, and they don't want their lives to be disturbed as well. And But there's a, a tradition there of music makers. And when I was growing up, what we got what we got exposed to on the radio were people who, the storytellers, that everything was country radio in my hometown, and I hated it. <laughs> I mean, if you made me listen to Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and the people that I grew to love... I mean, I just was like, that is so corny. And then you get older and you, and you go through some hard living and you realize the stories that are about people uh, living, loving, losing, it's the common experience. It, those are the stories that everyone experiences, no matter what it looks like. You know, it's, pain is pain, loss is loss, joy is joy. It's just the story behind it. And that's why those people became heroes to me. It's why I love Johnny and June. And it's why, I mean, I love the Carter family. I got to spend time with June and mm-hmm. listen to her tell crazy. I mean, just, just the gift of storytelling that, um, you know, I hope our kids will listen to us telling stories and um, will know the importance of handing down history, not just <laughs> like that, but of, of passing it along, you know, in conversation. Well, you mentioned when uh, up at the tiny desk, you know, we are living in these emotionally fraught times when even we don't exactly know what the truth is anymore. Mm-hmm. So what kind of truth are you bringing on an we album like We do know threat? what truth is. I mean, I, I have my <laughs> theories about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Get me another plane out, Chris. I'm not going to make this one. No, I think, you know, I'm a big meditator, and um, I came to meditation because I was very uh, lost. I mean, I think Mm. I'm built in a certain way that is really wonderful for being an artist. I have very high highs and very low lows, and I'm a little bit manic, and, you know, I've done a lot of different things to try to figure out how to even it out. And meditation has been the most holistic thing for me, and I have made a very strong practice of it for about 27 years. And I think, for me, the truth that I've come to is that we are born... Um, into a universe of energetic spirits and whether you call it the the spirit or whether it's your soul or just the vast kinesiology that operates uh, the electricity in your body that leaves when the body dies you know the carcass is left and all that electricity just wherever it goes if you think it goes there or whatever but there is a knowingness that goes along with spirit and that spirit gets Im- imprinted and imprinted and imprinted. But there's still a knowingness mm-hmm. about what's right and what's wrong and what is reality and what is ego-related storytelling. And I believe that, and it's just like what the Dalai Lama said, it's, it's a very simple truth and a very simple way of living that one must force oneself to experience empathy and that's what I worry about with the phones and particularly my kids and them losing the ability to react empathetically because there is no empathy when you're just texting and communicating on that but the bottom line is we do know intrinsically if something is right and if something is wrong now whatever whatever trip you go on to justify uh, what you're defending as being truth it will be reckoned you mm-hmm. know and i do believe whether you know i think there's there is a karmic truth that goes along with what we do and there is manifesting goodness and there's manifesting darkness and i think where we're at right now can be divided right down the line of ego and divinity not even divinity i mean i wouldn't put divinity anywhere near it mm-hmm. but i think when we're talking about defending what the country was you know, very fragilely um, cradled in this these ideas that somebody has to defend them. And the truth is the truth, end of subject. And there have been liars throughout our history, and there will always be liars, and there will always be defenders, there will always be people who are greedy, and there will always be people who are high-minded. We just now have to, we need to start in our communities and do the small things that help each other. While all that chaos is going on, I think it's grassroots movements of helping each other on a day-to-day basis that is gonna help America survive. Um, that's just my take on it. Yeah. And you elaborate that on that on threads, and you have a track with, with Chuck D, where you really get into that. Yeah, I mean, Chuck D, to me, is one of the great American poets. Um, he's part of a, an essential movement in this country, um, real truth-tellers, yeah. who really did document what was happening in their lives in a, a part of America we did not want to look at. Not only have we not wanted to look at it, we have gone out of our way to shun it and um, I mean I'm all on board with reparations I think I think there is a karmic history also with our land I think there are things that as a conscious society we we need to ultimately embrace and and it, it that's where I say start in your community and try to make things right where they have been wrong for a very long time but Chuck D is one of the great I think great two truth tellers and when I sent him this song which was based on a story my brother told me who builds homes in my tiny town he said that you know 
10 years ago, every day people would come up and say, I need work. Do you have any work? And he would be like, I, I, I don't have any work for you. He's like, now I can't get people mm. to work. I can't get people to show up to the job sites. And he's like, sometimes they'll show up and then they'll be gone four days later. And he said, look, when you do the, the division, you make $33 an hour on government programs. Mm. And it's not good or bad. It is what it is. And at a certain point, we have to like... This is where empathy and compassion comes in. We have to figure out a way to help each other and not, not condemn those on the government programs and not blame them, but we have to figure out a way to help each other out of this tape loop that we're on. And so I called Chuck D and said, look, I, I, I need you. you know, I've known him for 25 years. I was on the Rock the Vote board with him in the first year of its incarnation. And, and he's like, dude. <laughs> send it on and I mean you know that day he, he fired it back and he's just like so and Gary Clark played on it and Andre Day who's just this great fiery can't put me in a box artist and um, so yeah I mean there's there's good moments on the record that for me even talking about it I feel so just blessed and yet, and before you go and Cheryl does have to fly back to Nashville tonight I do have to ask you Oh, thank you. If you will have some tea and tell me why, <laughs> as blessed as you feel doing this album, and I feel blessed that you've made it, you are saying you will do no more albums. I, What's up, dude? Well, I know. I know. Um, I'm not going to tiptoe out the back door, that's for sure. <laughs> but I, I have loved making albums. I've produced a lot of my albums. I've produced other people. And it is a great love of mine. I grew up with albums. The way we're listening to music now with people cherry-picking and making playlist with the exception of those who love vinyl i'm not sure the art form is even as applicable but my feeling about it is is that i have a lot to say and i want to seize the opportunity to say it and it's almost like writing a newspaper and putting it out but you know by the time the newspaper comes out it's like yesterday's news everybody's tweeting let's tweet so for me i want to write songs and i want to put them out when i feel like it's necessary or I feel driven to put it out or if I feel like it's, you know, would be soothing or whatever, but I don't want to wait to make an expensive artistic endeavor that nobody's really going to enjoy top to bottom. So I do think that your albums, sorry, so long winded. (laughs) I do think we will be enjoying your albums for many years to come though. And and, (laughs) thank you. And and as you go, I just wonder uh, if you can tell us what is an album of your own mm-hmm. that you think will live beyond this moment of our mortal coil? Yeah. And what is an album just in the world that you think will keep living? Um, well, I mean, I hope that this album lives a long time. I, I, you know, there are things on the second record I think were really pertinent. I mean, there was a song on there about Walmart, and I, I, recently they, they've decided they aren't going to quit selling guns. And that, that made me feel like, wow, you know, it, not that that song had anything to do with it. Um, <laughs> I would love to take full credit for it, but um, <laughs> no, they, they didn't. I mean, enough, I mean, enough killings. You do eventually go, Godoy, maybe we'll quit selling guns. But I mean, Walmart's not wholly, wholly responsible, but that was a truth that for me, when I wrote the song, Love is a Good Thing, and they banned me, it was the first moment where I experienced what it meant to be a, what do you call it, a protest singer, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not fun, but... It, when you see the outcome of it, it actually it does feel satisfying. So the second record, I would love for that to remain. But there are things on the Detours record, too, mm-hmm. that were about what was happening when Bush was in office. And I mean, there's, there are a lot of things that I look at and I go, wow, 
that was then and it's happening now. And, you know, so I don't know. And then for me, I mean, uh, All Things Must Pass was a record that George Harrison made. It's a double album. And, and it had so much meaning for me. And I still find things on it that resonate and that feel timely. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the songs actually is on the record and Eric Clapton plays on it, which was a joy because he played on the original of Beware of Darkness. So that's one of my go-to records. I think that's how recorded music survives. It's through this kind of uh, transmission, these song lines. Um, you know, you making, re-recording that song with Eric as he had recorded it with George Harrison and who will record in 20 years Cheryl's greatest songs. We can't wait to hear it. That's why we call it. Soccer that's why we call it threads. There are a lot of threads. <laughs> that's it. Yes. I'm thinking a soccer yeah. mommy uh, maybe cover in the future, or who knows? I you don't know. never know. <laughs> I think. I think actually one of my boys is gonna be. Uh, he's like, Mom, when can I get to meet Chuck D? And I was like, Hold it, son. <laughs> you don't get to just meet Chuck D. <laughs> Well, the only last question I will ask before you run back to our hometown is, you know, if it makes you happy, that song to me is like a glass of lemonade. It is sweet and tart at the same time. To me, that is the Sheryl Crow quality. And I wonder, how do you do it? You have a minute and 25 seconds to tell me. Well, I mean, it's weird. Sometimes I write songs and I think, oh, gosh, this, this sounds so... It sounds so down, and then somebody will say, "Wow, there's so much hope in your music." You know, I I, I have to say, I'm um, I'm not a glass half full, but I'm not a glass half empty. I'm more of a realist, and sometimes music for me is my way out of my own mm. self-inflicted misery. And I know that everybody has that. It's part of who we are. It's part of that voice that tells us that we suck at a lot of things, and it's part of the voice that tells us that, God, you're getting so old. Maybe you should like you know whatever it is people do you know i mean it's just it's just you know and so i write about it some of those things are hard there's always hope in everything though i mean there just is there has to be hope in everything otherwise why go on we know the answer to that (laughs) well thank you so much cheryl for your gift of sweet and tart hope for your optimism for your protest and for your beautiful music oh thank you so much you You guys thank you Thank you so much.